Māori ora ki te whare, i ngā mana, i ngā reo, i ngā waka, i ngā maonga, i ngā awa, i ngā mate, i ngā iwi hurinoa, i te whenua ne. Nao mai hari mai, ki te taorima o Aotearoa. Tēnā koto, tēnā koto, tēnā tātou katoa. Uh, hello everyone and thanks for coming out tonight. Um, my name is Carl Shooker and uh, welcome to the Angina Monologues with Sam Nishef. Uh, Sam Nishef is one of the world's leading cardiac surgeons. He's the author of two books, The Naked Surgeon and The Angina Monologues. Two very different books, one showcasing down and dirty stories of what cardiac surgery looks and feels like from behind the knife, and Sam tells me written in an hour each morning before he went to do that work. And one investigating in depth the medical profession's centuries long tradition of knowing one thing and telling patients another, if anything at all. So Sam, you have rather winningly written that uh, people assume that doing heart surgery is difficult. It is not. With enough practice and guidance, almost any doctor who is not totally cack-handed can become a technically competent heart surgeon. To which, first of all, I wanted to say, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> but second of all, um, as civilians, we know or we certainly feel deep down that surgeons are different to us. Every week or so, you know, as you say in your book, you hold a human heart in your hand and you squeeze it to get the air bubbles out. Um, How else would you get the air bubbles out? You see what I mean. <laughs> uh, there remains something of a penitent priest mentality between the patient and the doctor, certainly at least senior specialist doctors. Um, and there, there is most certainly a massive imbalance of information between doctor and patient. So what sets heart surgeons apart from the rest of us? Um, not very much, really. I think I nowadays... You'd say that. Yeah, well, <laughs> We're just people, and, and we have a job, and we learn how to do it, and we get many years of training and practice in order to do it properly, and we hopefully do it properly most of the time. So I don't think there is anything that sets us apart. There is, in our history, the way heart surgery developed, because it was a relatively new specialty, and the, my forebears, perhaps even down to this day, were risk-taking cowboys, because they had to be, because nobody would dream of operating on the heart, and those who started to want to operate on the heart were, they were blazing a trail that they did not understand very well. So there was an attitude of devil-may-care approach to the specialty. They were doing things that had never been tried on people that had no other option. They had no other choice. It was that or die. And that trait in heart surgery has persisted to some extent, even to this day. But nowadays, I don't think we should be like that. I think, I think we should be really boring people who do an operation well and who get the patient through it as safely and as effectively as possible, and preferably with as little drama as possible. But there is a little bit of that cowboy spirit still present in some of my colleagues, and perhaps a little bit in me, but not much. A little bit in you? A little bit, maybe. I have to restrain it sometimes. Mm. 
So this idea of the surgeon as apex predator, type A personality, is it a myth? Um, they probably are more type A than type B, mm. the, the ones that go for surgery. It's, you, have, you have to have supreme confidence to be able to, I suppose, you know, go in and nonchalantly crack open someone's chest, put them on a heart-lung machine, stop their heart, do stuff to their heart and expect it to work well. And then if things don't work well, still be able to do that again the following day. Mm. So it does take a little bit of confidence. And it's interesting, we've looked a little bit into the way, the way surgeons manage and cope with the situation when things do not go well. And they are quite interesting human studies in, in, into the methods by which people cope mm. with problems. But by and large, yeah, they're probably more type A personalities than type B, but they're all reasonably sane. <laughs> so, uh, oh, this brings so many questions in my head, but um, in, in the book you talk about, um, not a mistake, but a, a, like a very, quite a devastating complication in one of your patients. Mm. And you talk about being called back to that patient and going through the five stages of grief in your 12-minute drive, or 12-mile drive? 12 miles, yeah. To mm. Patworth. Mm. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it struck me a while ago that there is something very strange that happens when something goes wrong. You know, it's, it, it's a team effort doing heart surgery. You're never there by yourself. You're there with an, um, a, a, another assistant surgeon, sometimes a second surgeon working on the... On, on, on the other sites such as the leg, um, you have an anaesthetist, you have a, um, a junior anaesthetist helping them, you have two people running the heart-lung machine, there are runners and scrub nurses and all of those people are there and it's, it is a team. But when something goes catastrophically wrong, there is a massive feeling of isolation. You're on your own and it's almost as though the room visibly dissolves, it's not there anymore, and all that's left is you and the problem. And I, I remember looking at all of this and trying to assess exactly how people respond when something goes catastrophically wrong in an operating room. And it gradually struck me over the years that it's identical to the five stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the famous psychologist, described. Because the first thing is denial, and it's undoubtedly what happens. You know, this cannot be happening. This is not happening. No, 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 no. And then, interestingly, other workers added isolation to it, which made me feel very vindicated, because it's also associated with this feeling of terrible loneliness. And then afterwards, there is anger. Um, no, why me? This is not fair. I, I, I'm not, you know, what did I do to deserve this? This is ridiculous. And then after that, there is bargaining. And bargaining is fascinating because you go through in your head, you know, if only this patient would pull through, I'm going to be really kind to animals and friendly to... <laughs> and and I'm, I'm, I'm never going to do anything rude again. And you do all of that. And then there is depression when you think, oh, God, it's all hopeless. Nothing, nothing is going to... Nothing good is going to come out of this. And then finally, there is acceptance. And... It's only when you pass through these first four stages, which are actually forms of madness, because they are useless. Denial, anger, depression, they're not good for you. They don't actually achieve anything. 
you need to pass through these four stages in order to become sane again and able to do something to help the patient. Because while you're angry and bargaining, you're not doing anything useful. So I now teach the aspiring surgeons to recognize this in themselves so that if they are ever in that situation, they know, okay, I'm going to have to go through these four stages now. Let's go through them as quickly as possible so we can be useful again. So th that was my thinking about that. And I think it actually applies. It really does apply. Mm. Um, Sam, you were going to give us a reading. Would you like to do it now? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll read you a little bit of the book. It's sort of representative, but not, not totally. I don't know if any of you know the condition of acute aortic dissection. Has anyone heard of it? You have, yeah, it's, it's bad. It's really bad. Um, <laughs> it, it's actually the only emergency in heart surgery. Believe it or not, most heart surgery is never done as an emergency because most conditions can be, they can be temporized and improved and optimized and operated on in the cold light of day in, in better circumstances. The trouble with acute aortic dissection is that the death rate from it is 1% per hour. So you can't really afford to wait till the following day. And they're not, the patients are not going to improve on, on keeping. Now, uh, what happens is you have a tear in the aorta, in the lining of the aorta. Blood enters the, the wall, and it splits the wall apart. And uh, it just shears it off, like you know, taking the wallpaper off a wall. And of course, that compromises every single artery in the body. It compromises the aortic valve, which is attached to the wall of the aorta, compromises the coronaries, compromises the brain, and it can rupture. So for all of these reasons, it is a genuine emergency. You have to really get the patient theater as often as possible, as, as soon as possible. But um, most of the time, this condition happens in, in elderly people who've got diseased aortas. Um, or sometimes it can happen in people with connective tissue disorders, people whose connective tissues are weak, they're younger, um, they may have Marfan's or another syndrome. Very, very rarely it happens in um, pregnancy. And, and the reason it happens in pregnancy is because the tissues are a little bit weakened by all the female hormones that are effectively softening the mother up to produce the baby. I mean, that's the only way I can put it. So uh, when it happens in pregnancy, it's really bad news because it leaves you with a situation where the interests of the mother are really best served by an immediate rush to the operating theater and fixing the dissection, but that's really no good for the babies. Um, the baby may not survive an open-heart operation on a heart-lung machine. So this, the, the story I'm telling here is the story of a, of, a, of a young woman who was pregnant. She was about 32 weeks pregnant or 33 weeks pregnant with twins. And she presented with an acute aortic dissection, and we had to have a quick conference to decide what to do with her as she was on the ambulance on the way to, to Papworth, to the heart hospital that, in which I work. And of course, we had to debate, well, whose interest do you put first? Um, well, I inducing labor straight away would have been fatal for her because she would have, her aorta would have ruptured with the high blood pressure from the pain of contraction. Um, taking her to the operating theater, fixing her dissection would have probably been more likely fatal for one or if not both of the, of, of the babies. And as they were already 30-something weeks, you know, they could survive outside the womb anyway, so it seemed really unfair to, 
just dispense with the babies in order to save the mother. So we decided that the best thing to do would be to um, take her to the operating theater, put her to sleep, um, and do a, a, a very quick cesarean section, get those babies out, um, wait for the afterbirth to come out, wait for the womb to shrink so the bleeding stops, and then get on with the, with the, with the heart operation. Um, it's, it was a bit of a brutal decision, but uh, this is what I've described in, in, in this chapter. Um, we made that decision. The, the ambulance then arrived. Nina, which was her name, had a rapid assessment followed by a quick chat to John, the anesthetist, and me, in which we outlined our plan. She was in dire straits, cold, sweaty, and in shock. Her aortic valve has already been disrupted by the dissection and was leaking badly, and as a result, she, she was in heart failure. And she was desperately short of breath. She readily agreed to the proposed plan. She shakily signed the consent form, and we whisked her into the operating theater. The obstetricians came to Papworth, accompanied by the neonatologists with two incubators in tow, ready for the new arrivals. And John put her to sleep, set up a combination of powerful intravenous drugs to control her blood pressure, allowing him to tweak it either up or down as required. The obstetricians scrubbed up, carried out the cesarean section, and delivered the babies who started breathing immediately and looked perfectly ready to face the world. While the obstetricians were sewing up the wound, the babies were brought out of the operating theater in their incubators. Babies born by cesarean section do not suffer the trauma of going through the birth canal, so their faces do not become scrunched up and bruised in the process, and they don't acquire the strangely wizened old person look that uh, many babies have when they first meet the world. So Alfie and Evie simply looked gorgeous, a boy and a girl with beautiful blue eyes, wide open, breathing comfortably and without a care in the world. And I was looking at them in their cots in wonder when John came out of the operating room. Yeah, they're really cute, he said, but that's enough cooing over them. Now bloody well get in there and make sure they still have a mother. Um, these are exa his exact words, and uh, if it's not a spoiler, I'll tell you that the mother and the children are fine. So, Sam, your background is, is a rich and fascinating one. As you're from a Palestinian family. Um, your father was a UN official working in education. Mm -hmm. Your mother was a, a writer who was passionate about classical and modern literature. An educated, middle-class family who sought refuge in Jordan after 1948 and then moved to Lebanon with your father's UN work. And um, you left... Lebanon when you were 22 or 23 in 1976, which mm -hmm. was a year into you know, one of the bloodiest civil wars um, until Syria. It went on for subsequently 15 years and devastated the country. So, and you've told me a story about in Beirut in the bad old days that you had to learn to adopt the right accent at roadblocks in order not to be shot. Um, so can you tell us about how a young Palestinian boy in collapsing Lebanon then goes through all the grueling sort of education of becoming a cardiac surgeon um, in the UK? Well, it was, it was actually a lot easier than that. <laughs> um, I had... Nobody in my family ever did medicine. In fact, there were no, no doctors in, in my family at all. A lot of us were educated, but we were along the lines of 
classics, teaching, education, languages, literature, that sort of thing. And I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I thought, of, um, I, thought I was okay at science, so I thought I'd do something scientific like engineering. Um, the trouble is, I don't know if it was coronavirus or something, but I got ill just before I was supposed to go to the UK to do my A-levels. Um, and I had a fever and, and a bit of pneumonia, and it didn't get better with the usual treatment, so our, our GP got worried. So he said he's going to send me to hospital, especially when I became a bit delirious, and my parents agreed with that, so he sent me to hospital. I was ill for all of four hours, and then I felt fine in hospital, but the hospital was lovely. <laughs> it, it, was, it was the American University Hospital in Beirut. It's located right on the seafront. It's, I was on the top floor in a private room with a bed that you could move with buttons <laughs> and a color television. Now, none of those things were, were commonplace in, in that time. And they wouldn't let me out until my x-ray was normal. So I spent about five days just watching. And two things struck me. First was that the nurse who looked after me was very attractive. <laughs> and secondly, the medical students who clearly wanted to spend time in a room with a patient who was more their kind of age as opposed to the older people in the other rooms, they came and had lunch in my room. Mm. And they were lovely. It was really nice talking to them. They looked happy. They looked like they were enjoying what they were doing. And I thought, I could be one of them. Mm. And it was the decision to do medicine was based on that stupid scenario. <laughs> I had never looked into it before. Yeah. And in fact, I, I remember when I finally got into Bristol and we finished our preclinical pre work, we had to do two years of essentially lab work and, and science and looking down microscopes and cutting up dead bodies. Finally, we were about to be released um, to deal with real patients, and it was Ward 20 in the Bristol Royal Infirmary, a Nightingale ward that stretched as far as the eye could see with very old, very sick people in it, which it did not smell very nice. It was grey and dark and miserable. The nurses looked, you know, worked off their feet, and they were really stressed. And I remember walking into that and thinking, oh, is this what I've let myself in for? Is this what my life is going to be like? And it was a real disappointment. But in fact, I don't regret it for a minute. It's been a wonderful career. Mm. I really enjoyed it. And was there a moment in your training when you thought, it's hearts for me? No, that was another accident. It's all my decisions have been accidents. <laughs> I wanted to be a physician, and I was vaguely interested in hearts. Um, but the way physicians argued on ward rounds drove me up the wall, so oh. I decided to become a surgeon. And then I liked thoracic surgery, which is surgery of the lungs and gullet, um, because I was in Exeter, and I was working for a very um, charismatic, really nice guy called Mike Pellero. And so I said to him, I want to do thoracic surgery. I really like what you're doing. And it wasn't because I liked thoracic surgery, it's because I liked Mike. <laughs> and he said, well, you can't do thoracic surgery, you have to do cardiothoracic, that's what it's like in the UK. And I said, okay, well, I'll do cardiothoracic, how, how hard can that be? Um, and then I'll drop the cardiac, but then, of course, when I got into it, I enjoyed the cardiac a lot more. But all of these things were not... I mean, some people are 
born to be cardiac surgeons. They know mm. what they want. They, they know that they're made for it. I, I was never that. I just fell into it through a series of badly made decisions. <laughs> um. So as well as, um, it was really interesting, Sam was at a conference that the Health Quality and Safety Commission put on yesterday and he spoke twice um, for about, probably about an hour each time. And what struck me as you were speaking was um, you delivered a whole body of research on some aspect, usually of risk or mm. um, related stuff, but there was a whole body of research and then you were like, you would pivot slightly and sort of say, and we looked into this thing, which interested me as well. And then it's like, oh my God, there's a whole nother body of research as well there. Mm. And you were actually doing these um, quite in-depth uh, research, publishing papers on it, as well as performing um, extremely high-risk cardiac surgery, as well as writing the occasional book. Um, I want to talk about fiasco in a minute, but... You're essentially an expert on risk. And very early on in his career as a medical student, he started measuring the outcomes of colleagues in his unit and then showed them their outcomes as data um, in a very, very unpopular meeting. Um, <laughs> yeah, th this was when I was a, a third-year medical student. I was very naive, as you probably gathered from everything I've said already. And we were given projects, so you know, every medical student was given a project to do, and you were supposed to go and look it up and speak about it at a professorial surgical unit meeting. And I got given a project, emergency <coughs> arterial surgery, and I thought, oh, that's, uh, that sounds interesting and exciting. You know, I've, I've got a good one here. So I went to see what sort of arterial surgery was done as emergencies in those days. This was in 1977, 78, I think. And uh, I looked it up, and there were only two, two operations. One, one of them is femoral embolectomy, which is taking a clot out of the femoral artery that the heart may have shot into it and compromised the leg. But the other one sounded much more interesting. It was repair of a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. Now, there are... Um, this is now quite commonplace surgery. People have abdominal aneurysms, aortas that enlarge and they pop. And we either operate on them before they pop, or if they pop, they have an emergency operation. Um, and I, I thought this sounds like really exciting stuff. I'm going to study this one. Now, what most students did was that they took their project, went to the library, looked up what was written about it, put it all together, and came and talked about it. And me being a geek and uh, trying to be a teacher's pet and trying to impress people, I thought I'll do a little bit of research into this. So I went to the medical records department and dug out all of the abdominal aortic aneurysms that had ruptured and were treated in, in that hospital. And I looked at it, and the first thing that hit me was that, you know, gosh, a lot of them die. And then I thought, I wonder what determines who dies or not. And this was from a very naive perspective. So I looked into all the things that could have an impact on the survival. And I only found two things that made a difference. It didn't make, seemed to make no difference how old the patient was, whether they were male or female, or whether the kidneys were working. Or, but two things made a difference. One of them was um, how shocked they were when they arrived. You know, the state of cardiac shock, the having a high pulse rate, low blood pressure. Those who were shocked did not do well. Um, 
And the second thing that seemed to make a difference was which surgeon did it. And I thought, wow, they're going to love to hear this. This is a new discovery. <laughs> and when I went and presented it, it went down like a lead balloon. Um, I think I probably began to understand surgeons' mentality then. And, um, and then I discovered later that I could not get a house, a house job, a house job in, in the southwest of England. And eventually I managed to trace it back to that particular event that I was blacklisted by the surgeons. Um, so I, I didn't really like surgeons much in those days. <laughs> not sure I like them much now, but uh, I get on well with them. But this was, in a way, what started my interest in looking at outcomes. And yes, you're right, I'm, I'm a risk geek, but I think it is a new field. It's very interesting. It's a way we, by which we can improve what we do for patients quite a lot more than by developing new operations and newfangled technology. Just study the risk and make sure that we're doing the best that we can with the tools that we have. So I think it's, it's worthwhile, and it, I find it a very fruitful field of research, and I will carry on researching in it. Mm. And your research on that has like changed the way people um, actually assess patients and do things to mm. patients. Um, you're an expert on risk, but how do we as patients make a decision based on advice from a surgeon that a procedure that we might need has a risk of dying of... 1%, 2%, however smart we might be in other contexts. I was very struck by our, the chair of the Health Quality Safety Commission, who's an anaesthetist, who, who said to me quite early on um, when I was working with him that when even if you're a senior health professional, you go into hospital for something, it all flies away. You're, you're in an alien world you know, mm. whatever you knew is not relevant to mm -hmm. what is happening to you. Um, you're frightened, you're disoriented. You know, if it's your children, it's even worse. Um, so how do we, as patients, balance need and risk, and how do you communicate it to people? Because I know when you communicate it to professionals, it's abstruse and complicated and there are graphs, but people get it because they're trained to. Mm. What about regular people? Well, the, the first thing is to get better informed. I mean, no, no, I'm not saying everybody has to be fully informed. Part of the reason that I write these books is to help people be more informed so they can ask the right questions. And I think it's important to ask the right questions. But the days where um, medicine was practiced along the lines of the, you know, the kindly doctor putting his arm around you and saying, I know what's best for you, my good man, you know, and you accept the treatment from them. I think those days have gone. Um, there are several options. There are several options of treatment. There is the option of no treatment for whatever condition that you're looking at. And all of these things have got advantages and disadvantages. And I think people should know. And the asking the questions is not hard. When it comes to having heart operations, for example, people have heart operations for two reasons. One of them is to feel better, and the other one is to live longer. And if an operation is not going to make you feel better and it is not going to make you live longer, then it is a waste of time and money. And it hurts and it leaves you with a scar and you should not be having it. So at least you need to know what is the operation going to do for you in those two respects. So if it's a question of 
feeling better. If you have a severe pain in the chest that stops you getting to the front gate, or if you're so short of breath you can't climb one flight of stairs and the operation gets rid of these symptoms for you, then you can ask, okay, that sounds good, what's the risk? The risk is 1% risk of death, 2% risk of death, whatever. You can assess that by measuring the risk versus the benefit, and then you can decide whether you want to have the operation or not. And I think doctors who do not explain all of that stuff to the patients honestly and correctly and accurately are failing in their duty to inform. And the consent that the patient gives is not valid because mm. it's not properly informed. Mm. So for that, for that, I think the vast majority of patients are perfectly capable of, of making decisions. And you know, you must have heard the adage, you know, no decision about me without me. Mm. You, you need to have your say in, in medical treatment. Uh, and I think, if anything, this is going to increase. I think patients will demand more information in more detail and will want to be empowered to make their own choices. I certainly would want, would want that if I were a patient. Mm. So I don't see why other people shouldn't get it. I'm reminded of a book by Martin Macri as you're talking, um, where he describes as a medical student going working with two different surgeons and they had nicknames. One was called the Raptor. And the Raptor was um, technically brilliant, mm. but um, an absolute disaster by the bedside. Mm -hmm. And he was horrible and alienating and cold. Um, another, the other one was called Hodad, and which stood for <laughs> Hands of Death and Destruction. Mm. <laughs> um, but but Hodad was beloved. And Had a very good bedside manner. They loved him. And you tell a similar story in this book mm. about in, in your training in the US when um, there was a, an option open to the patient and the US policy, the focus being, let's do more. Let's do more tests. I think it was a, a Prince Gans catheter. Swan Gans catheter. Swan Gans, yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. And this... This particular surgeon does complication after complication, a hernia turns into an infection, turns into mm -hmm. this. Then at the end of that, the, the patient wants a photograph with his hand around the doctors because mm. it loves him. Yeah. yeah. So can you speak to this problem? Um, there's, you've, you've highlighted two things. I mean, the first one is the bedside manner and the confidence and the trust. And I think, I think it's important. But, you know, I don't think it's that important. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to be very kind and friendly. Um, Do I, you agree? <laughs> I, I think it's more important to be honest. I, I, sometimes, I sometimes appall the medical students who sit with me in clinic because um, I, I want to explain to people as honestly and as bluntly and in as plain language as possible what the situation is. So if, for example, I'm... To keep it simple, I'm seeing a patient who has chest pain, has angina, and has breathlessness, okay? And they have a good, good heart, their heart is in good condition. Now, it's possible that an operation, uh, the operation will definitely get rid of their angina because it sorts out the coronary problem. Now, if it gets rid of their breathlessness, well, it all depends. The breathlessness could be coming from the coronary problems, but it could also be coming from lots of other reasons. And I actually use words like, well, I can get rid of your pain, as for the breathlessness, if it's due to the heart, it'll get better. 
But if it's because you're old, fat, and unfit, then it will not. <laughs> and I see the medical students blanch, <laughs> and they think, I'm going to get sued. But it is true. It is true. And you have to be honest with people. So I don't think I... I don't have a good bedside manner. <laughs> I'm, I'm not rude, but, you know, I, I try to sympathize and empathize. But my bedside manner is probably terrible. But at least I'm honest. And at least you're good. Speaking of good, you know, how do we as patients know that surgeons are good? Um, your other book, uh, The Naked Surgeon, was published in 2012. Um, the Naked Surgeon talks about transparency of data and uh, of healthcare data. And this is a subject dear to both of our hearts, but you're an absolute pioneer in this field. So two years after you published your book in the UK, the mortality and complications rates of individual named surgeons um, in 14 different specialties were published on a website. You could look up your surgeon before you went to it. They'd have a rating, okay or not. In New Zealand, a journalist made an official information request for that same data from five DHBs and was turned down. Uh, he complained to the ombudsman. Uh, his complaint was also turned down with some important caveats. Um, we won't go into those right now. It's a bit complicated, but don't we have a right to know if the surgeon that we are allotted by our local hospital has a death rate worse or better than his or her colleagues? Absolutely. Isn't that part of informed consent? That is part of informed consent. And I think there are two ways of approaching it. And one of them is total transparency. That means all the data that everybody has are published and for anyone to look at. This is, is good. It, it works and it definitely improves outcomes and it acts as a good spur for those units or doctors who are not doing as well to pull their socks up and, and try to be better. So that sort of thing wor works. But it, it does have pitfalls. Um, surprisingly, sometimes it can actually be damaging to the patient, um, not just to the doctor. Um, there are a couple of things that definitely happen when you have total transparency and you publish everything. One of them is there is conscious or subconscious gaming in order to make results look better, and that can result in decisions which may not be in the best interest of the patients. And the second one, which definitely happens, is that doctors become a little bit risk-averse and shy away from operating on higher-risk patients because they are caring more about their figures and how they're going to look to the outside world than caring about the patient in front of them. And that definitely happens, and we have proven that it happens. There are ways of getting around these problems, and in a way, once you're where we are in the UK with total transparency, you can't put the cat back in the bag. You're not going to stop publishing outcomes because, well, it'll look highly suspicious, wouldn't it? What, what have they got to hide? But now that we're publishing our outcomes, we'll have to continue publishing our outcomes, but we will have to find ways of dealing with these, if you like, perverse incentives that arise from publishing outcomes. But perhaps more important than publishing is that everybody should be measuring outcomes. You know, we, we are doctors and we have, we have an aim when we treat people. Um, we should know what that aim is and we should know whether we're achieving it. And if we're not achieving it, we should have a way of making sure that we fix the problem so that we are achieving it. So the one thing that I absolutely have no truck with is doctors who carry on merrily doing what they do 
and have no idea how well they're doing it. And I think that's unacceptable. And I think we can probably improve the lot of patients and the clinical outcomes that we hope to achieve quite a lot more by insisting that no doctor practicing should continue practicing without knowing how well they're doing. Now, whether you publish that afterwards or not is probably a little bit less important, but you should definitely be measuring it. As you can imagine, I have um, lectured quite a lot on this subject in many places around the world, and, and the, the range of reaction varies from reactions in New Zealand, where people know exactly what the subject is, they understand the topic, and they want to sort out the problem and improve the measuring and the robustness and the transparency to other countries around the world where they look at you as though you're some sort of freak from outer space and they don't even know what, what the subject is that you're talking about. It's, we've got a long way to go, mm. but New Zealand's doing well. In The Naked Surgeon, you, you actually mean, I didn't know you worked at Bristol, but um, you included an, an appendix uh, from Stephen Bolson, and mm -hmm. Stephen Bolson was a whistleblower on a, on a very important um, scandal, sadly, um, and a scandal around children's heart surgery uh, in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And what, what was happening was a unit was having very bad outcomes and they were continuing to operate. Um, this young new anaesthetist came in and he realised something was wrong because as an anaesthetist, he knew the operations were going on too long. Mm. And as you know, Sam teaches us with heart operations... Time is everything. Mm -hmm. Stephen's piece that he included in your book was called and, still, and Yet Still No One Told the Parents. Um, after Bristol, the BMJ quoted Yates. They said, all change changed utterly. Um, Brist uh, British medicine will never be the same. Mm. So has, has Bristol changed British medicine? I think it probably has. It's, um, it's not quite a direct cause and effect. Uh, the... the, the there have been data, lots of, lots of data in, in cardiac surgery, right from the very start of cardiac surgery in the UK, where Terence English, who was one of my colleagues at Papworth, started by insisting that everybody in the country at least count. Count how many you're doing of what. And all that was kept in a register. And then they started counting um, um, how many you're doing and how many are dying and how many are surviving. So it was pretty crude at the beginning, and then it got better and better with risk adjustment and validation of data and all that sort of stuff. The thing about um, Bristol was that it was catastrophic mm. in that the results of pediatric heart surgery, especially in a handful of operations, were absolutely appalling. But it wasn't the era where people were inspecting surgeons' results. In fact, if you don't mind me saying so, it wasn't the done thing. Right. It was considered rude to probe those things. It was accepted that doctors and nurses did their best, and that was the end of it. And if that best wasn't good enough, well, tough. That has changed utterly after Bristol, and now we no longer accept that you just do your best and it'll do. It, you have to be up there with an international standard. In the Anginal Monologues, you write about the McCluskey Club. Mm. And that's a club of colleagues from your year or thereabouts where you get together and you share your mistakes. Yeah. Um, one of your great mistakes, if you don't mind my bringing it up, was when um, it's a world-renowned hematologist 
who you were operating yes. on, and uh, you didn't quite stem the bleeding on this world-renowned hematologist. No, was that no. the story? No, well, he. <laughs> this is really embarrassing. Um, bless him. He's he's died now. He died in his 90s of cancer. But um, he he was uh, he was Max Perutz. He was the discoverer of the structure of hemoglobin, and it was in his lab that. Watson and Crick discovered the structure of DNA. There were more Nobel Prizes given to that lab than anywhere else on Earth. And then when he was referred to me, he said, it just needs a single coronary bypass graft. But for goodness sake, look after his brain. He is one of Cambridge University, Cambridge City's most valuable assets. And as you know, cardiac surgery can affect the brain. So, so I went to do the single coronary artery bypass graft on Professor Perutz, really worrying about his brain. And I thought, we've got to do this operation quickly and waste no time on the heart-lung machine and make sure there is no air and, and um, um, make sure the blood pressure is kept high because he was nearly 80 then and you know, make sure that his brain is really, really well looked after. So I did the operation looking after his brain extremely well. And then he went to the ICU and I sat there and relaxed. And then the phone call goes, could I come and see Max Perutz in the ICU? And I thought, oh, God, he's had a stroke. That's what it could be. And I went to the ICU feeling very dejected. But he hadn't had a stroke at all. He was just bleeding too much. Um, so I had taken back to the operating theater to sort out the bleeding, which allows me to, allowed me to present at McCluskey one of my most embarrassing problems, because I just showed, I just showed two or three slides. I showed the structure of hemoglobin. And I said, you all know this. Here's the structure of hemoglobin. Next slide, please. This is Max Perutz, who discovered the structure of hemoglobin. And the next slide, please. There's a bucket full of blood. <laughs> this is Max Perutz's hemoglobin. <laughs> <laughs> In the drains after yours truly operated on him. Thank you for your attention. <laughs> that was quite an embarrassing episode. But he, he fortunately did very well. And the, neither the first operation nor the second damages his brain. So I'm grateful <laughs> for that. That's a relief. Recently in New Zealand, there's been a lot of debate about how we deal with medical error. Mm -hmm. um, there's ACC. We have ACC who can give us a payout for what they call a treatment error. Um, we have the Health and Disability Commissioner to whom we can lay a complaint and expect some kind of resolution months or years later. Mm -hmm. There's these two very different processes. Um, how do you deal with mistakes and how do you communicate them with your patients and how should we deal with them? Um, I think the, probably the most important thing is to be totally honest with the patients. I, uh, if something goes wrong, I usually say that to the patient and I say that to the relatives. And I say, this is what happened, we tried to do this, this didn't work, there was a problem, we maybe made a bad decision. I think just being open. Being open diffuses an awful lot of anxiety and fear about problems. And I'm fortunate, touch wood, there is any wood. I have never <laughs> been sued once so far, and I've only got another two, three years to go, so I might actually get away with a clean record in that years. respect. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, I think, yeah. well, time to retire soon, don't you think, and go traveling in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of the time, pro problems happen because there is a lack of trust and because people try to hide and to sweep things under the carpet, and of course, if the trust goes, then the patients do not do not trust at all what, what people say to them. So I think openness and, 
and honesty are really important. But then the other thing is to learn from mistakes. Mm. There is no way you can have a service that does the complicated kind of health work that we do without things sometimes going wrong. And if you analyze mistakes, and you alluded a little bit to the fiasco study, mm. um, the fiasco, in the fiasco study what we do is, you know, fortunately, bad outcomes usually happen when the patients are very complicated and high risk. That's when they usually happen. So when we try to study those, it's very difficult to learn anything because there is so much noise from the multiple illnesses and complications of a particular operation. But if no matter how good your hospital is or how good your service is, there will be occasional really bad outcomes in very low-risk patients and studying those allows you to find out where the system errors are in the hospital. And we've done that study at Papworth and a few other hospitals around the world have taken the lead from us and also done the study. And that allows you to learn where the mistakes happen and where there are the system weaknesses that can be fixed. And of course, these will differ between hospitals. So um, studying mistakes can be extremely useful, even if the mistake itself is damaging. Might be helpful if people know what FIESCO stands for. Oh, it's an acronym. It's um, Failure in Achieving a Satisfactory Clinical Outcome. I like acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> people remember it. Um, so I think it's question time. So if you have a question for Sam, um, please make your way to the microphone. I think we've got some people helping us. How important are the relationships inside the team in the, in, in the operating theatre for managing risk? We, of course, work in a team that are about anything between 10 and 12 people in an operating theatre when a complex heart operation is being done. And uh, one of the things that upsets the surgeons an awful lot is that they say, well, you know, heart surgery is a team effort, but when the patient dies, it's my fault. And that's not fair. But in fact, they are the leaders of the team, so they really should take responsibility. There is a lot of work going on at the moment to try to see which, which is better. Is it better to have harmonious teams that work together and that know each other and, 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 and can function very smoothly and seamlessly together? Or is it better for teams to constantly change in order for the best practices to be passed on? And it is still debatable. Nobody's really quite sure. There's no doubt that for me it's much easier to walk in and be familiar with everyone there. But um, if I were to do that over a period of 20, 30 years, then chances are I will get into a rut. Hi. I just wanted to ask you about your work that you did in Palestine in the West Bank. Could mm -hmm. you just explain a bit about the hospitals there and the type of surgery that you were doing and what the conditions were like? Right. Well, when we, this was in 2008, and there was virtually no um, cardiac surgery service available in, in Palestine. There was, a, I think... One hospital tried to get a, a service going, but always relied on visiting surgeons from abroad. And um, I was asked to go and help set it up so that the local surgeons could begin to do heart surgery there. They had the kit. They had an intensive care unit, and they had the machinery. So we just went there, a whole team from Papworth, in order to do some operations and use those operations as a way of teaching. Um, and it... It was good. It was, it was successful, mostly. We had some problems. Um, we had some issues which were perhaps sabotaged due to political reasons, but I honestly cannot 
prove that or disprove it or know who was responsible. But it was useful and we, uh, we at least benefited a substantial number of patients who otherwise would have had no, no treatment. But the problems, in, the problems in Palestine are bigger than that and you might actually argue that adult heart surgery is, is not really their first priority in terms of access to healthcare. There are far more important basics healthcare needs that need to be satisfied first. But it was a great experience. Since then, there ha I think there is now a service, a, an adult cardiac service in, in that hospital, which seems to be working well. And there is a pediatric cardiac surgical service, which is probably more important than the adult one, which has been provided for the last few years by one of my ex-trainees, who is now a surgeon in Spain. And that looks like it's beginning to take off independently there too. But you know, heart surgery is not going to fix the Palestinian problem. <laughs> in a high-risk situation in war zones, and say, for instance, in our Christchurch shooting, do you make a decision whether you should operate or not? I think the first thing is that it should be the patient that makes the decision rather than me. I, I'm very good at working out the risks, but I try really hard not to push patients into having an operation or into not having an operation. I just lay it on the table as plainly as possible. But one of the things about heart surgery is that it's a, it's a slightly blithe comment, but the more an operation is likely to kill you, the better it is for you. And, and the, the reason for that is because really high-risk operations are done for high-risk conditions. So that um, the operation may be risky, but leaving you without an operation is even riskier. So I think all of that stuff needs to be laid open and presented to the patient as honestly as possible, and they make the decision. What is the additional life gained by doing a low-risk coronary artery bypass grafting operation? Right. Well, do you know that nobody's actually studied that? Um, <laughs> but I'm working on it. <laughs> okay, there are, um, there are two, two ways of looking at it. One of them, we, we, we have defined a way of calculating at which point after an operation do you begin to benefit in terms of survival. So we know how to do that now. And if you, I can ask you a few questions if you're contemplating having coronary artery bypass graft. And, and I can tell you that you will begin to benefit in terms of survival starting from today, tomorrow, next year, the following year, i.e. when you've paid back the risk of having the operation. So we call that TOOT time until treatment equipoise. But, of course, you can then measure how many average number of years extra life you would have had over your lifetime by having had the operation. And I like acronyms, so this is going to be called the Toot Suite. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done the work on that yet. I'm still waiting to have the time to study it. But, Overall, if you have left main stem stenosis, that's narrowing of the left main coronary artery, then the number of years gained by having coronary artery bypass operation is actually huge. Um, if you have triple vessel disease without left main stem stenosis, it's big, but not quite as big. If you have single vessel disease, it's not a lot. So have it only if you have pain. That's probably the straight answer. Uh, 
Thank you, Sam. Thank you, everyone, for coming out to see Sam tonight. Um, and have a wonderful evening, and I'd just love it if we can give Sam a round of applause.